Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Launching a book isn't easy, but it can also launch you into a whole new life. What's important now is that I am a best-selling author and that's awesome. I found my soul on this journey. I found my purpose, you know, in life. In this show, I talk to authors about how they launched and how it took them to the next level. Hi there. Welcome to episode 325 of Launchpad Podcast. I am your host, Anna David. I'm a New York Times bestselling author, and I talk to other New York Times bestselling authors, bestselling authors of all varieties, as well as the world's most successful entrepreneurs, about how they launched their books and what their books did for their career. Uh, if you want the show notes for this episode, just go to launchpadpub.com slash blog slash dom. And that's D-A-U-M. And the reason for that is that today's guest is none other than Megan Dom. She is the most wonderful writer. Oh, my God. She's the author of six books, most recently, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. She was an opinion columnist for the L.A. Times for like a decade. She's written numerous stories for The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, all the places. And she launched her career with this book that really became, she was like, the voice of her generation, our generation. She and I are the same generation. It was called My Misspent Youth. And so she talks about what it's like to have a book that nobody thinks is going to be a big deal become a big deal, then get a huge book deal as a result of that, and what happens afterwards. And it's pretty great. She's pretty great. She's got her own podcast. It's called The Unspeakable. It just launched in July of 2020. So go download that after you listen to this and read all of her books. And now I give you Megan Dom. Hi there. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me, Anna. It's always well, a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. The last time I saw you, I believe, was in New York. Do you remember that? I think it was in, was it in LA? I remember coming to your studio in Hollywood. Am I misremembering okay. another time? No, you are remembering because this was slightly before that because I remember we talked about you coming on my podcast, but I was having dinner with you, Michael Hirshhorn and Mickey Kaus. And I remember yes. being like, okay, these are some like serious intellectuals, like gear up. Like I read up on uh, events and it was the day of Brexit. So I was, I oh was my actually, gosh. Yes. I don't remember that. And we sat at this outdoor Table. Yeah, that was at a private club. Oh, we're fancy. No, I wasn't fancy. I'd never heard of it. It was a private club that one of those people belonged to. Anyway, I, yeah. I, your listeners can't possibly care about this, but yes, You'd it was surprised. a private club, and it was um, I I had never heard of it. No, uh, neither had I. But you had just moved to New York, and I had yeah. recently left New York, and I was trying really hard to be like, oh no, it's great. I I wasn't miserable there, but I had been miserable there. But now you've escaped. You've escaped. Um, oh, yeah. And you I, wrote a lovely post about it. I wrote a lovely post that got me completely dragged um, on Twitter, like Shut beyond. Up. Yeah. What so, oh, yeah. For well, leaving New York. Yeah. So I kind of knew it would happen. I mean, I left here in uh, late March. I mean, sorry, I left New York in late March. And the reason was that I was getting a, a new puppy. It just, uh, the timing happened to coincide with that. And it was going to be hard enough anyway, because I live in a big apartment building in Manhattan. And um, then the lockdown started and I thought, oh, well, I'll just find like an Airbnb someplace. And I looked further and further out and it was like, oh, who's going to take a virus refugee with a 10-week-old Newfoundland puppy? <laughs> And these wonderful people uh, rented me their their farm down here in 
rural Virginia, southwestern part of Virginia. And uh, I have, I thought I was only going to be here like a month and it's going to be almost six months. And, uh, and, and here we are. But yeah, I wrote a piece about, about coming down here and just this sort of weird, like catatonic state I found myself in for the first at least month or so because I was chasing this little puppy around uh, who's now playing with his very noisy bone. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just so strange. And I, and I, and I wrote about like just how, how odd it was to be here. And for some reason people on Twitter interpreted as my making fun of the region. And part of it was that I didn't want to be specific about where I was. So I said Appalachia and I just, I kept referring to it that way. And apparently Appalachia is like uh, its own social justice uh, identity group. (laughs) So they, they just like defaulted to the idea that, um, that I was somehow like dissing them and being a snobby New Yorker. Now I I think that it was, there is a huge stigma uh, to admitting that you left New York because it's a sign of privilege and um, all that. So I I really would not have written about this if I didn't like have a column and I had to file something every month, but it's just, those are the hazards of having to file stuff. I mean, and I think it's just, did you ever read So You've Been Publicly Shamed, the John Ronson book? Of course, it's a I classic. Mean, classic. It started classic. it all. Yeah, I mean, I just am so grateful I'm not important enough to have been dragged through the mud on Twitter. It's just crazy. You're totally important. I, Anna, I feel like it's, your time is coming. Don't <laughs> give up on yourself. Well, don't you think we're all one tweet away from our life being destroyed? Oh, yeah. I mean, and then the funny thing is I got m- ruthlessly dragged uh, for that piece. And it's funny because um, Katie Herzog and Jesse Single had just started their wonderful podcast, Blocked and Reported, which is all about Twitter, uh, Twitter blowups. And I was their very first guest and talking about this. Um, but then, like, literally, I recovered from this. And then two weeks later, I just like off the cuff decided to make this stupid joke about <laughs> about how I thought like people with PhDs, I was thinking like people with PhDs and like the humanities are like, you know, g- sub sub genres of sub genres of gender studies don't necessarily need to go around calling themselves doctor <laughs> all the time. And I just like, I made like a stupid uh. joke about it and it got, it went viral and I got ganged up on by PhD Twitter, <laughs> who was also apparently a marginalized group because they were like, absolutely outraged and it still pops up i mean that one was like the worst of all and i've been pretty well behaved on twitter for years you know it's actually the first time i had i had done something that stupid well what's interesting is that you are such an unafraid writer so you write things that could absolutely enrage and offend people i do not find those things you know but but you know your and your podcast is about the unspeakable things I mean, you're right. like the poster. Now talk. I'm going to get other people to say things to, to make people mad at them. I'm oh, just going to ask questions. I like it. <laughs> um, so, so let's talk about your, your incredibly impressive career. So five books, um, columnist for the LA Times for decades, a decade. We're not old enough for a little, no, not decade, a little over a decade. Yeah. From 2005 <laughs> to around 2015, 2016. So, and, and, and so we focus here on book launches. And so I'm, I'm, can I just bust out and say, what's your favorite book that you've written? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I actually, I have a soft spot for my novel, the quality of life report, maybe because like not that many people read it (laughs) and it's my only novel. Um, and I hope to write more novels, uh, someday but um i just i i loved writing it it was a lot of fun and um so i i liked that book and that book definitely that was like one of those things that had a huge it had a huge launch and it probably sold the least amount of copies of any of my books so these things tend to work in inverse proportion that's so interesting well novels it's a whole other thing but you are somebody who like your first book really launched you right out of kind of out of the gate well, you know, it's interesting because it seems that way in retrospect, but, uh, you know, at the time it was a very small publisher. It was published by Open City Books, which was a publishing arm of Open City Magazine, which was a literary magazine and it got started in the 90s. It was very hip, like New York City 
uh, you know, part of the like alternative literary sphere at that time. Um, and I, it's, you know, it was so interesting because I was working as a freelance writer. I was writing for magazines. Um, and, you know, I had some sort of big hits, a couple pieces in the New Yorker, like pieces of GQ, Harper's. And I just really loved essays and I wanted to do essays. And my agent at the time was always like, oh, yo, you need to write like a big nonfiction book. You need to like have some high concept. And I wrote proposal after proposal for such books. And actually looking back, I think a few of them could have worked. Like for whatever reason, my agent was just like not digging it. Um, and I'm kind of grateful that, that they didn't work because they would have been miserable to write. Like I was trying to write about kind of like, you know, this idea of th th these kind of, you know, hypocrisies around feminism and the branding of feminism. Even back in the 90s, I was really interested in that. So I could have written a whole book about that, um, but my agent never liked my proposals. So finally, I was like, look, I'm an essayist. I want to do a collection of essays. Um, that's what I do. And again, the agent was like, well, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> that'll, that'll like destroy your career before it begins. And so I was like, fine, I'll just like publish with my friends. My friends were running Open City Magazine and they wanted to do it as a book. And it was like a tiny little production. I mean, I got a couple thousand dollars advance. They put it out. It was in paperback. It was like this cult thing. And, you know, it's funny. It didn't even get, it got some kind of negative reviews even when it came out. Um, people don't like remember this but it did like it was like oh who is this spoiled girl she's so shallow you know because I would be talking about these you know kind of iconography of social class and trying to you know kind of making fun of people who are obsessed with such things as I was and it was taken literally by some people um and so you know it wasn't really until like later that it became this like quote-unquote cult classic if you want to you know call it that but um, you know, I think it's I think it's easy to sort of have nostalgia around some of these things. Well, I mean, it's merited for all of us because publishing was was if not a dream, at least not the kind of hell that it is today. But but I think I you know it, it, so so let me ask you this: how so how first of all how did you had an agent for your magazine pieces? Yes, and that's actually how. I started out. Yeah. So I was writing for women's magazines mostly because th those were what paid the most. I never had any other source of income. You know, that's another thing. I think people, this is like the dirty secret of, of publishing. Like, you know, you have to have independent source of income if you are going to be in the business. You know, it's like we talk about why it's all these white people. Well, because those are, you, those are the people who can tend to afford to be in the business. Uh, so, so I really like, just was like hustling all the time, writing for Self and Glamour and, um, you know, Mademoiselle, all those Condé Nast magazines. I mean, I had a job at Allure magazine. That was my first job out of college. I was an editorial assistant. So I really like sort of toiled in, in those, in those minds. Um, and yeah, I had, I had the agent. Um, he definitely got me some really, yeah, he handled the magazine pieces and I got paid really well. Um, because they paid a lot back then. They and so did. that was that was a way to to survive. But none of those none of the pieces I was writing for women's magazines ended up like being collected anywhere. Like those were just to pay the bills. So And then but but were your New Yorker pieces or things optioned? I mean your books have been optioned. Optioned for film or yeah. television? Yes. Um the, yeah, the quality of life report was optioned for film. Um, and you know, that went around in Hollywood for years and years and nothing ever came of it. But, but I, that, you know, I really like milked that pretty far. It was optioned a couple times. And then at one point I wrote the script. So I was able to get into the writer's guild, which is, I really just wanted the health insurance. That was my Such main Such good insurance. Yeah. yeah. So there was that. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, the unspeakable had an option for a while, um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, not, not as, not, it's not like every book has been optioned. Not, not, not at all. Well, okay. And so let's talk about, so it, how did it become a cult classic? My misspent you. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I think because it was just like so little and underground. Like that, that's the thing. I, I think that if, if my misspent youth had been published by a big publisher at that time and kind of touted as like, oh, here's this like quote unquote, voice of her generation which is such a 
douchey <laughs> phrase. Um, if it had come out that way, I think that it would potentially not have been received as well because it would just have looked like this is like the next person that they're like, they've decided to elevate and whatever. Um, but yeah, this way it was sort of just like, oh, I, I, it was an indie band. Like, oh, people could say like, oh, I knew, I knew her, you know, I, 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 I was into this book before you were. That, that's kind of the thing. Right. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's never, it's not like I ever made any money from it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I did earn out my, my couple thousand dollar advance. I, I, I will say that. So having never earned out an advance, hats off. Never. <laughs> well, if you get, if your advance is low enough, you will eventually uh, earn it out. No, I experimented with that one too. Oh, it was the book that you were in. You, yes, you were in that book, The True Tales of Lust and Love. I had the honor of editing mm-hmm. you. Mm. you. Wrote an essay about your then husband and how you guys watched a lot of television. Oh, right. That's right. That's right. That was the glue of our marriage. We watched like... Um, like high-end cable dramas. The Wire. The Wire kept us together. The Wire and The Sopranos and Six Feet Under kept us together. I just remember this one line in it where you're just like, we are not, to put a fine point on it, like losers. Like I'm misquoting it, but it ended with the word losers. It was just like a perfect turn of phrase. Hmm. Uh, So, okay. So let's talk about book launches. So you've had, but you've had the experience of a publisher paying you a lot of money and am I making this And and having like all this hype. So what is that like? Well, I mean, it's a very lucky thing. And uh, yeah, so I had my misspent youth came out in 2001. um, And then I wrote a novel, the quality of life report and had a new agent by then and I sold it um, and yeah, that was one of those things where it just, um, it went into an auction situation and, you know, they like really overpaid. So they had to do everything they could to, to promote it. Um, I mean, they did, they were great. Like my editor was fantastic. They did a beautiful job with it. Um, and this was 2003, it came out and like, yeah, I mean, it was big tours. I had a big hardcover tour. I had an even bigger paperback tour. I think I went to 15 cities And, you know, one of the things with that book, uh, you know, it's a really, it's like a very, it's a satirical novel. um, And it's inspired by my own experience. I moved from New York City to Nebraska when I was um, about 30, just for no reason whatsoever. I was, I mean, there was a reason, which is that I was completely in debt. Like my misspent youth, that, that was, that's an accurate description of my, (laughs) my situation at that time. So um, yeah, I went to Nebraska and I just kind of lived there for several years. And so I concocted this, this story about this television reporter who um, works for like a cheesy morning show in New York and moves to this fictional town of Prairie City to um, do a series of uh, installments about how she has simplified her life. So the simplicity movement was a really big thing back then. Remember that? Like, mm-hmm. remember Real Simple Magazine, which I wrote for many times, you know, and it'd be like, oh, here's an $800 wastebasket that will that will cleanse your soul and simplify your life. <laughs> and so it was making fun of all of that. Um, and it was really dark in a lot of ways, too. Like, it was very kind of like this high-low thing. It was a satire and, you know, it had really dark moments in it. Like it had to do with, with drug addiction and had to do with mm-hmm. social class and geography. And uh, I think that they felt compelled to sort of package it as chick lit or a beach read, you know. Um, the cover had uh, like feet on it. That was the big trend back then. Like it was either the, the bare back, like the dress where you would see the, just the back of the woman, the back of the right. woman's back or the feet. Um, so this one had feet and I think that like a lot of readers were disappointed because they thought they were getting like a fun beach read. Um, and so it didn't get, um, I'm not going to say it didn't get taken seriously because it got really nice reviews. Um, but I think that it was one of those things where the publisher just thought that the best, you know, the kind of the surest bet would be to market it to women in this, in this particular way. Um, and so, yeah, so I would go on book tour and, um, I mean, this, this is like one of those things that you just sound like you're like, 
this is the kind of thing that must make people who are now in their 20s like just want to murder you. It's like, oh God, I had to get on a plane every day and I just get in these hotels and my God, the four seasons, you know. Um, but like, but sometimes three people show up. I hear I've never sometimes. Well, let me tell you something. Sometimes one person shows up, which is the worst. Zero is infinitely better than one. (laughs) Right. And on, I remember being in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, on this tour. I can't remember if it was the paperback or the hardcover. And I get there and it happened to be the same night that David Sedaris was doing like a huge event at the university of Minnesota. And like, it was, he was at the absolute top of his fame. Like there was a huge piece in the New York times, um, with photographs from this particular event. I mean, there was an overflow, like it was like a stadium event. And so one girl showed up to my reading at this little bookstore in St. Paul and she was like, Oh my gosh, I am such a fan. Like, I can't even believe that I get to meet you. Like, you know, she had driven like a hundred miles from her family's farm or something. And, and I was like, well, I hate to break it to you. You're the only person here. And so I just took her to go see David Sedaris. No. Uh, And that's what we did. Yep. And uh, it was, it was the obvious thing to do. I wasn't going to just like stand there and read for her. Um, And it was a lovely night. That's amazing. Um, I had to look it up while you were talking about it. You are right about the feet, and it looks very odd. I would not think this was a a book about somebody moving to Prairie. Prairie City, yeah. PC yeah. for short, yeah. That. I would not think that from looking at this cover. Also, the feet, it's like a model's feet, and so they're huge feet. They're, they're gigantic. They're big feet, and she's wearing pajamas, right? Is that Wearing pajamas, is? and she's like sitting on a porch, I think. And then on the paperback edition, they they had just a woman like with her head cut off because that's the other thing. So the paperback edition was a woman with a bare midriff, like a black t-shirt that is not covering her stomach. Wait a second. I'm looking at (laughs) it. Just how I gallivanted all around. Oh, well, you know, now it's been reissued and there's a really nice cover with the farmhouse. No woman, no woman there at all. Right. There's a, yes. The one that the new, the reissue is very, very nice cover. Okay. So talk about that getting a reissue. That's because it sells so well, I would assume. Uh, No, that's because it went out of print. But then people wanted it. That's how it came back. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually approached a publisher. So uh, I feel so, I don't like, I don't want my publishers to get mad at me for talking about the, talking this way about my books. Like, <laughs> just like, um, you know, the problem with quality of life report, like it actually, it, it sold. Okay. It just like, it was, the, the stakes were so high that there was no way they could be met. Like it would have had to have been Bridget Jones diary or something in order to, you know, do what it needed to do. Um, but yeah, so I, I can't remember exactly when it went out of print, but um, a couple of years ago, I, uh, I was able to bring it back I, with, um, with a small, small press. So that's, and I love it. It has a beautiful cover and Curtis Sittenfeld wrote a lovely um, foreword to it. She Which, was always a big fan of the book. So, but it's interesting because novels don't tend to have forewords. Some, no, they don't, not as much, but you see that more and more, I think. Any time you can get like a more successful author to put their have, have their words in the book <laughs> as well as yours. Yeah, <laughs> that's never a good a bad thing. thing. <laughs> so, um, okay, so, and so, so the other thing, so they sent you on these two tours. What else did they do? Did they, you know, what's it like to be a part of a big launch? Tell me and my listeners because I don't think any of us know. But this is like history. I mean, none of this happens anymore. There, there was this thing called the satellite tour. Have you ever done that? Um, no, I'm ashamed to admit, but explain what it is. So that's like where you just, again, this would never happen now, but that's like where you, it's radio satellite. You just sit in your house for like hours and hours and they just patch you through to like every morning morning drive, morning zoo kind of like radio show in the country. And they're like, boom, boom, boom. And it's like these people who haven't read the book. I mean, you know, and so you just have to like say your thing over and over again. Um, and again, like uh, that's, that's amazing. That's great. Also, by the way, like you do a lot of NPR, like, uh, you know, so yes, it, with any book, obviously um, literary book, the, what you want is to book either fresh air. I mean, obviously fresh air is the, is the number one thing you want. Um, yeah. 
have a funny story about that. Uh, Tell and- me. <laughs> oh my God. So, so when I, so when my miss, this is the thing. Oh my, this is like literally, I will go to my grave, like kicking myself. So, so when my misspent youth came out, somehow Terry Gross wanted to interview me. I was like, fantastic. And I had moved to Lincoln at that point mm-hmm. and I, I wasn't there very long, but what happened when I moved to, to Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, was that it coincided with, um, had my misspent youth even come out? It must have. No. It had, that's right. My misspent youth came out. I was already living in Lincoln. That's right. But the, um, it, the title was taken from one of the essays that appeared in the New Yorker. And so the, the essay, my misspent youth came out of the New Yorker just a few months after I happened to randomly move to Lincoln, Nebraska. And at the end of the piece, it, it, the piece is all about being in New York and like the economy of creativity in, in New York. And it's like about a whole bunch of things. But at the, at the very end, I sort of mentioned that I'm moving to Lincoln, Nebraska. And so of course what happened is every person in Lincoln, Nebraska who re- reads the New Yorker, like called me up and invited me over. And, you know, you can imagine this is a very self-congratulatory group of people. Okay. Who, you know, <laughs> New Yorker readers in Lincoln, Nebraska. Right. So, so I had this like, n- I had this completely inauthentic experience there which is part of what informed the book. I mean, you know, mm. it was, it's really all about like mm. authenticity. So I, I, the second I moved there, I had like people sort of like either being kind of irritated with me or wanting to cozy up to me or just sort of being like fascinated. So I went into the studio, um, the local NPR studio to do the Terry Gross interview. And I just sucked. Like it was, I was horrible. I was horrible at talking about the book. Part of it was that, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I was, I had a really hard time being candid at that time in my life because my parents were just like, you know, they're no God rest both of their souls. They were like really, they, they just took everything personally. Like right. they were like benevolent narcissists. Okay. And there was just nothing I could say about anything that would not have set them off. And so it was as if, you know, not only was like, you know, the, the entire, not the entire, but like many people from the NPR Lincoln affiliate, like sort of hovering around the studio because they were so excited that somebody was being interviewed for fresh air. But like my parents might as well have been sitting in the studio. Right. And, and the essays are quite personal and, sort of embarrassing in some ways. And I just was unable to talk about them in any kind of interesting way. And it was like, hor- it was a horrible interview and they never aired it. And I blamed the fact that they never aired it on 9-11, even though I think we did the interview in like July <laughs> of 2001. And I was like, well, they were going to run it, but then 9-11 happened. So I have never been able to get back on Terry Gross. Oh, man. And that, yeah. So... Anyway, that's what happened there. But the way we got on that was that, yeah, so if you have a book come out, what your publicist will want is to book you on Terry Gross. Um, and if not that, then All Things Considered or Morning Edition. Um, yeah, and I've done all those other, other, other ones. And do those move the needle in terms of those are the NPR shows that, that actually people go and buy the book when they hear the author? Yeah. And you know what? I'm not even sure that's so much true anymore. I think that was like completely true up until a few years ago. Um, but just the entire media landscape has so dramatically changed uh, over the last few years that, you know, I still think like having a great Terry Gross interview will probably move a needle, but you know, they're, they're, they're just, the bandwidth wasn't as wide back then. I mean, everyone listened to Fresh Air like that, you know, everyone read the New Yorker that week and they listened to Fresh Air that day. And that's what people talked about when they went to a party. Like there was a sort of, you know, limited set of conversational topics because the media was so limited. So like, right. you know, and now it's just so siloed and, and there's so many things like, I think Joe Rogan can move a needle. Um, I, I wonder if he can move a needle more than Terry Gross. I don't know. I would be, I don't know how you would even do the metrics on that, but well, I'd be curious. I will say like, you know, I had Lori Gottlieb on this show and she had yeah. a Terry Gross interview with all of the success that followed. And I, I have a friend who went on Joe Rogan and nobody buys his books. So uh-huh. I don't know. 
I don't know. I think um, everything can be the exception or the rule. But, but okay, so that is so interesting what you said. So let's talk about that challenge of uh, people's reactions to what you write, particularly family. People ask me about this all (laughs) the time. Let me ask a totally inappropriate question. Is it easier now that, that your parents are gone? Yes. Yes. Um, I also just don't care anymore. Like I, I really don't, um, I, I have been writing controversial pieces for my entire career. And, you know, I, I have drifted in the last few years into this kind of like free speech, um, kind of anti cancel culture, um, landscape of, of, of inquiry. And, you know, part of the reason for that, it's not because like, I'm so obsessed with, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's not because I'm so obsessed with like wokeness. It's because I, I want to keep writing the way I've always written. Like, I don't want to change my approach to my subject matter. And we are in a climate now where something that I would have written 20 years ago that nobody would have batted an eye that would have just been considered part of the like normal liberal kind of like intellectual discourse is now anathema. Like, you know, it's, it's completely shifted. So, you know, part of the reason that I, uh, I think some people think I'm some sort of, you know, outspoken or like contrarian of some sort. And it's not that at all. I just, want to stay the same. That's all. Like, I just want to keep doing what, right. what interests me. Yeah. yeah. I just, I just want to keep doing it because it's like, I'm not interested in just saying something that everyone's expecting or like, I'm not interested in saying the obvious thing because that's not why we're in this business. We're in the business to like invite the reader to, to think alongside us as we like think counterintuitively or whatever. So anyway, um, I, I don't, I'm at a point now where people have been mad at me for about so many different things for so long that I really don't care. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't read, you know, frankly, like I don't, I don't read my uh, Amazon reviews. I never look at my, Am- the last, I'd say the last um, probably three books. I have not looked at my Amazon rank one time. That is so impressive. Well, or it's just like, I have my head in the sand. I, I, I don't know. I, I just, don't know. As somebody who, you know, w- w- I had a book come out a couple of weeks ago and just constantly hitting refresh on Amazon, just constantly, you know, yeah. um, n- not proud, but, but I, I, one day maybe I will reach your place, but I think I, I just don't want to know. I mean, I th- feel like it, like, I don't know. I just, I feel like my motto in certain ways could just be like, I, I don't want to know. There's just so many things that I don't want to know yeah. and that I don't need to know. <laughs> so, like I, if there's something I could do about it, yes, but there's nothing you can do about your Amazon rank uh, yeah. or your reviews. I yeah. mean, maybe there is, but not really. I mean, so. probably there's a way to game the system and, you know, yes. surgery that we don't know. But, but so, but so, so you have all these expectations, tour, Terry Gross, what else happens on that big, big launch? Oh, well, you, you do your uh, events, you do your bookstore events. Sometimes they're at bookstores, sometimes they're in big, bigger venues. Mm-hmm. Um, you figure out where you want to be. You have a party. They used to throw the party for you. The publisher used to pay for the party. They don't do that anymore. So now you got to pay, throw your own party mm-hmm. or hope a friend of yours throws a party for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you just kind of, you know, it's, it's so different now. Like it, it used to be that this was kind of set up for you, that they would, if, if you were lucky and you had a big publisher and they were treating you well and, you know, mind you, most people, most authors are not that, that lucky. Like, you know, even, even, you know, you could be published by Random House and still not get very much. Um, so I was, I was always really fortunate. Uh, so they kind of rolled the carpet out for you a little bit. Um, but I would say, so, you know, the big tour for the, for the novel was like 2003, 2004. And then I did not have another book. I had this like long dry spell and I didn't have another book come out until 2010. And by then, um, things were starting to change. People were not buying books in bookstores as much anymore. So the, the tour, I think I only went to like three or four cities, uh, for that book. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, we did NPR, had 
um, the book was about real estate and and how housing and like sh- you know being obsessed with shelter and houses and design. So I had um, I was on Marketplace and they came, you know Kai Rizdal, the host came to my house and like you know we talked about my house because you know, I talk about my house that I bought my my little tiny house in Echo Park in Los Angeles and he came out there and um, so it was it was like that. But the other thing they want you to do too is like write a whole bunch of articles to promote your book. So it's it's like they want articles to be written about you, but they also want you to write a whole bunch of stuff, often for no money, uh, as a way of like supporting your book. And so I did a whole lot of that um, up until the most recent book, when, which I just, and I refused to on that one. So Well, and even that. worse, the Q&As where a writer oh. sends you the questions and you are writing out the answers. And that's basically like, writing six articles. Right. Although, although I have to say that is really helpful in terms of figuring out how to talk about the book. True. I mean, here's another thing. It's like when, when the book first comes out, you're finding your feet in terms of how to talk about it. And so, you know, and for me, it takes like several months, sometimes like a year to really figure out how to talk about it, where the beats are, like what points are most interesting, what anecdotes are worth sharing again and again. And so when your book is first out and you're really doing a whole bunch of events, that's actually when you're at your weakest in terms of talking about it. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's frustrating. Um, you know, so I, yeah, so you do. So I think that like the Q and A, and I love it too. When like a lot of the Q and A's, I've had Q and A's where I actually write the questions and the answers. Like, like I think there was a, like I think on my website for one of the books, I it was like Q and A with Megan Down, and I I just like wrote the questions that I wanted to be asked. Wait, the Nervous Breakdown. They they let you do that. It's called this this site, the Nervous Breakdown. It's actually a great site. Go on. Is that a podcast also, or am I thinking of something else? I, okay. I, it could be by now, but back when right, I right. did it, yeah, you got to interview yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All softballs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there, yeah, there's a lot of writing and they want you to write, you know, if it's, if it's a nonfiction book of any, that has anything to do with like current events or something, they want you to try to write an op-ed for the New York times or something like that. And of course those pay like a hundred dollars, I think so. $200. Right. Um, and so they want that. They want to try to, there's the whole first serial business where they want you to, they want to take an excerpt from the book and have some publication run it ahead of time. And that's actually something that the publisher usually handles. And often the author doesn't even get paid for that. That's just part of the publicity mechanism. Um, yeah. I, I remember having, tr- you know, because now I publish my own books and I remember getting into it with HarperCollins because they would only excerpt a certain number of words and the publication wanted more. And I'm fighting with them to say, this this would be so good for, oh, no, 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 we're only going to give a thousand words. And so the opportunity. Oh. I, I had a lot of dumb unnecessary situations, which I'm still working through. I um, want to know how you publish your own books. Wow. I didn't realize that. But oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's, Megan. It's the that, ticket. The, maybe so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would have to learn how to like, you know, upload a file if I, a little bit better if I was going to do something. Yeah. Like well, that. I know someone who knows all about what <laughs> do. Um, yeah. I mean, I basically, yeah, I just basically, all I do is rail against traditional publishing and then I have a publishing company and it it's, these things that you think are so impossible are not impossible. You know, I, my, I was used to my publisher telling me, oh, we can't get it in that bookstore or whatever it is. And I didn't understand that they were prioritizing other books. As an author, I can go and get my book, not in any store, but even now stores are currently yeah. closed. Like I'm able, you know, I've got it in book soup. It's at Kitson, you wow. know, not even a bookstore. Wow. And I was so used to my my publisher telling me, no, 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 don't contact them. You get in trouble if you contact them. So these are tales from the other side, Megan. Yeah, yeah. Those other writers. But, but I will say one other thing that you said about talking about your book. One thing that I did for my most recent book, and I recommend people do, is write a sales page on your website rather than just having your book summary, a cover, and you know, reviews or whatever, actually break it down into this is what the reader is going to get out of it. This is why I wrote it. Uh, and, and, and it helped me because it helped me solidify those mm-hmm. things. 
mm-hmm. so that I was ready to talk about it. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 And I actually found, so I, I have five books that I, that I wrote and then I have the sixth book that I, that I edited like you, I did an anthology. Yeah. And um, that I actually found was very different and incredibly fun. And I loved promoting that book partly because it was, there were contributors involved. So I could like kind of gather my flock and yeah. we could do events and I didn't have to do everything. And um, it was, and it was a subject that was um, easier to talk about. And I, I kind of got, got my talking points down pretty early on. So it was, it was a little bit better that way, but um, and it was yeah, otherwise it's kind of lonely. Yeah. And, and you get self-conscious. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you're just like, why should anybody care? Like, there are so many books out there. There's so, there's just so much stimulation. There are so many people saying things and right. asking others to absorb what they say and respond somehow. It's like, it's. I just think it's like incredible gift if if anybody bothers to <laughs> to read your book and so when they write and you know the thing is it's like they when they write and say that they enjoyed it that's incredibly gratifying as i'm sure you know because you know for every you know person who hates it the, the, if somebody you know they're they're more likely so i knew as a columnist like people would always send me angry letters and it's like you know for every so for every uh you know person that writes a nice letter there are probably 10 people who wrote an angry letter. So is that true? It's a lot. Yeah, because I think, I think that people are, well, I mean, maybe not so much for books, but you know, when I was a newspaper columnist, yeah, I think people are, they're much more likely to like bother to, to write to you if they're mad about something like, you know, if they, I I just have to tell you you're wrong. And if somebody's just like, Oh, this is great. Yeah, I agreed. And then they just like go on with their day. Right. Right. I think with book reviews, you can get some really, you know, passionate fans to. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, and so let's, and so now you're doing a podcast. Yes. It's only as of this recording, three weeks old, I believe. It's only two weeks old. Two yes. weeks old. Yes. So, so let's talk about that. What made you decide to move into that land? Because. Because a, nobody was, because nobody was doing it. Nobody was doing podcasts. And I felt that somebody needed to do one. You want it to be the first podcast mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, yeah. Same. Same. Yeah. No one does them. It's just no. Me. No one does them, and especially not not in a pandemic and, no. and all that. Um, I'd actually I love interviewing people. I love talking to people. I do a lot of interviewing. Um, when I was in Los Angeles, when I was in LA, when I was writing for the LA Times, I did a lot of events like interviewing authors, and um, people would come in, and so that's just like something that is very different than writing. Like it's just another sort of hat. So I had really always wanted to do a podcast for several years and I just couldn't quite figure out how to do it or how to get it together. And um, I was literally like a year ago, I was trying to figure out, like I was, I was actively trying to figure out how to do it even a year ago. And, you know, I was talking to different people who had like existing platforms and like, should I go on their channel or this or that? And I, I really like, overthought it for many months um, and then finally just decided I should just do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Smart. And, but then that, well, but then we'll see because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to get going, as I'm sure you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's very new and it's an experiment, but it's, it's, it's conversations. It's, again, it, the, the concept is like nothing, um, nothing terribly unusual. It's just me like having sort of free-ranging um, nuanced conversations with, with interesting people who are, you know, willing to speak candidly about um, issues that, that in some cases may be unspeakable. Yes. I think that I will tell you, it's, it's a lot at first to get a podcast going and then you just kind of get it down and, and you know what you're doing and then you batch them and you've got your editor and it's just, it kind of becomes just one of the things you do. But they have to be timely is the problem. Like, the, especially now, I feel like you, if you try to, because I had a whole bunch in the can sort of, and I was so excited and I was like, oh no, this is, I can't, these feel so old now. Like if it's, it's been sitting around for a month, it's suddenly stale. Well, yeah, it depends on your topic. Um, 
you know, if you have a more evergreen topic like book launches, you know, publishing mm-hmm. moves fast, but not as fast as the world. Right. So right. It's right. easier. Um, I, I, you know, but the other thing is people listen to podcasts. A lot of times I listen to a podcast and it's not, it's out of date because I discovered that podcast three years after. Right. Uh, so, so who knows, but, and, and we, we have to get close to wrapping up and look, your, your puppy has gone totally silent. I'm super impressed. Maybe, maybe he, yeah, he's, he's chewing on his, he's, he's lying on the air conditioner vent, which is really the only place with the air conditioner on. That's that, love. I that, wish I was yeah. doing that. Um, wow. So what are you, what are you writing now? Are you going to sell another book? You, I had a book come out in October, so. Yeah. Yeah. I had a um, pretty controversial book come out. So yeah. Um, the paperback is going to, of that is going to come out in November after the election. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm, I, I'm right. I'm working on a couple of different things. Nothing that I really want to say too much about yet, but I mean, I would, I would just say like in terms of, of the idea of launching, I mean, th- this last book was really, really different um, in that uh, there was just a huge gulf between the way the media was reacting and the way people in real life and on the ground and in bookstore events were reacting. And so it was an incredible lesson. And, and it was so emblematic of how much things have changed because it used to be that like whatever NPR and the New York Times and, you know, the New Republic or whatever had to say about the book was consistent with what like the people who show up at the bookstore in St. Paul or Seattle ha- have to say. And, and this time, because the book was called the problem with everything and it has to do with the new culture wars and it has to do with these issues of speech and um you know the the just sort of emerging identity new iterations of identity politics and all this stuff and as a liberal i'm kind of not kind of i am criticizing aspects of the progressive you know extreme progressive left and um was not well received uh in certain corners and um uh and it was like, there was just this incredible gulf. Like I would get really negative review in the New Yorker. And then I would walk into the bookstore event in Seattle and it would be packed and people would be like dying to talk about this stuff and like so excited and thanking me for writing the book. And, and it's so, so different. And so I think that like more and more, if you're going to write a book and I'm sure you found this, if you're, you're self-publishing, like you have to just do it yourself and you cannot rely on these big institutions the way you used to. Um, and it's, it's a lot of work, but it's also liberating. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, you know, it's really nice to have control over, you know, I, I, I never had a lot of control over titles, covers, all of these things. I don't think people understand how much they're relinquishing control. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the idea with these big publishers is always like, well, we're doing you a favor by publishing you. So you let us kind of make these decisions. And, you know, yeah, they are doing you a favor by paying you. Uh, (laughs) But it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it's a, it's a a fine line. And they're, they're not trying to do you a favor. Like they are only paying you if they think they're going to make their money back and some, and, and who could blame them? It's a business. Right. But most books do not make their money back. I mean, that's the thing. Like, and the other thing is like, you know, you talk to musicians and they'll be like, wait, you don't have to pay your advance back. Like, what are you talking about? It is kind of miraculous that it is still an industry that functions in this way that like you could get a million dollars. Not that I've ever gotten anything close to that, but just for round numbers sake. And you could get a million dollar advance and sell 10 copies and you don't have to pay your advance back. But you will never sell another book to a publisher. You will never sell another book to another publisher, but like you're not indebted. Like you have, you got a million dollars, like walk away from the table. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't had the experience either, but, but yeah, I, I, it, it is, I mean, it's the craziest business. I mean, that you can't know your actual number of books sold. Right. I've never known the IP and everybody just sort of, oh, how many, how many sold? Like you should know the answer. Oh, I know. Don't you love it when like people, like normal people are like, how's your book selling? How Uh, many have you sold? And it's like, don't ask me that. Just don't. Just How's your book doing? The worst words in the English (laughs) language. Not as well as I'd like. But that's actually, you know, what I've learned about doing it myself is I've now published two on my own. They go exactly as I'd like. Because I'm in control and I know the reality. 
I know I'm not going to, you know, make a ton of money or, and so I can only be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I say this to students and people that I mentor all the time. It's like, you have to think about what do you want this book to do for you? Do you want it to be like the biggest thing in your life? Do you want it to like be the, the symbol of your whole career? Or do you want it to just lead to other opportunities? Do you want it to lay the groundwork for other things? Because the book in and of itself often is not the main thing. The book mm-hmm. is a vehicle for getting to something else, to doing speaking events or having a university teaching career or, or whatever it is. And, you know, I always, I always try to keep in mind, it's like, you know, be, publishing these things, it, it, it may not like, you know, even you, you might not even make a living from it, but it, it affords you an interesting life. It, yes. It, it, it allows you to have opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, and whether or not that might be like, you know, going to Australia to, to speak to an, an auditorium, or it might be just like having dinner with like a really interesting small group of people in New York City at a, at a private a club that you've club. never heard of. <laughs> But like those, that's huge. Like to me, that's kind of worth the price of admission, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And today you can build a huge career from having a book, but yeah, the book won't give you a career, but you can build a huge career from it. Uh, Fantastic. Megan, thank you so much for doing this. Sure. Thank you. People want to find out more about you. They can go to your website. We should spell your name in case you're somebody who doesn't know how to spell it. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways to spell my first name. So it's Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N, Dom, D-A-U-M. And so you can go to my website, uh, megandom.com, or you can go to the new podcast website, which is theunspeakablepodcast.com. And you can also find The Unspeakable Podcast at any of the usual podcast platforms. Fantastic. You guys go listen to that podcast. I, I read on the website, Dr. Drew is your next guest. We love yes. That. I know you guys are friends. Yes. We go back. Okay. Megan, thank you. Thank you. And you guys, thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week.